Hello, welcome. Glad you could join me. If you're a new listener, welcome. Happy to have you. If you're an old listener, welcome to you as well. If you'd like to follow along on social media, be sure to hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at AAOLMI and use the, use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. So that's the social media stuff. Let's actually dive right in. Last episode, we talked about the rise of the Ottoman and Safavid world and how the Sunni and Shia Islam are really shaped by the experience of the post-caliphate, the fall of the Abbasids, the destruction that has brought about the Mughals, and the transformation of Islam into being rooted into local scholarly traditions that's consolidated thanks to the Seljuks uh, and their project. Today I'd like to talk to you about what's going on in the rest of the Muslim world, specifically in the subcontinent of India. I want to talk to you about the Mughals. So Shia Islam became entwined with the Safavids, Sunni Islam becomes rooted in the Ottomans. What happens to the Mughal dynasty? This is the Indo-Persian world, right? Well, in the 16th century, there was a man named Babur. Babur is a military commander who is a descendant of the Timurids. The Timurids uh, are a dynasty that was found after the Mongols that fused Mongol society with uh, Islam. That was founded by a man named Tamerlane, quite famously, this kind of brutal ruler and warlord. Well, he is a descendant of this group of people, the Timurids, who lasted for a period of time. And he's an ally of the Safavids, but the Safavids are engaged in a frontier conflict with the Ottomans. And this has drawn in the Uzbeks, and as a result, it forces Babur to flee into Kabul, modern-day Afghanistan, and he establishes a sort of military command. His grandson, Akbar, establishes rule over North India by the 16th century, uh, 1560 specifically. Now, Islam had come to India quite early on, uh, and into Afghanistan as well. We saw it first in the 10th century with the Samanids. The Samanids were an indigenous Persian dynasty who took Persian culture and language as the major... Uh, cultural kind of unifying force. They translated all sorts of works from Arabic into New Persian. In fact, they took the Quran, which was written in Arabic, and translated into Persian, therefore making Persian uh, just as important a language to as Arabic in the Muslim world. This is one of the reasons why when Muslims spread throughout the region, Arabic becomes the predominant language, but the Persians don't lose their language. Persian as a language, or Parsi, remains thanks to the, to the Samanids. And the Samanids continue also uh, take on this project of conversion. They bring in a Turkic uh, group of people known as the Ghaznavids to be their commanders. The Ghaznavids eventually overthrow the Samanids and establish their own rule. And they are a kind of Turkic, Turco-Persian dynasty. And they lead all sorts of raids into North India. Um, and they, they were quite um, militaristic in that regards. But that's the kind of introduction to Islam quite early. But with neither the Ghaznavids nor the Samanids were interested in forced conversion. And so while they militarily expanded into Afghanistan and, and North India, it actually is the Sufis 
who helped to convert the region. They established what are known as Khankas. Khankas are kind of monasteries, and these monasteries had a lot of sympathy with the Buddhists and that were living in the region. It was the predominant religion in North India and in Afghanistan. And a lot of the indigenous Buddhist population found Sufism appealing to them. There was a lot of similarity. Along with the Khankas, there were the caravans. And so they had these merchants that would travel the Silk Route and they would stop at these Sufi Khankas. And so they could take Islam and their religion wherever they went. And so there was this kind of slow process from the 10th century on of really converting the region into Islam. So India wasn't new to uh, Islam. But by the time of Akbar's Mughals, you had a Muslim dynasty in charge of India. And that was different. So up until that time, you had a series of different Rajas, you had different local dynasties and rulers. But this was the first real Muslim dynasty to rule in India. Others had expanded the territory slightly, like the Ghaznavids, but none had established Muslim rule. Now, Akbar was quite interesting as a ruler. On one hand, he was a ferocious man. Quite famously, there is a legend about him in which a uh, vizier angers him and so he throws this vizier out the window and then he carries the body back up just so he can throw it out the window again so he's one, he, on one hand he's got this ferocious reputation and yet on the other hand he has a very synchronistic approach to Islam and that is because he adopts a form of Sufism the mystical form of Islam, tasawwuf, this idea of internal spirituality uh, and universal truth, it's um, compatible with the indigenous Hinduism and Buddhism. He doesn't see Sufism as superior, nor does he see, nor does he see it as something that uh, is meant to dominate the region or force everyone else to convert to. Instead, he sees it as one of a tapestry of religions, Sufism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism. And in many ways, this kind of syncretic, synchronistic, egalitarian, open and tolerant Sufism uh, of Akbar establishes or in or in many ways fulfill their value of sul e kul that is universal peace or world harmony and the Mughals adopted or perpetuated a sort of Indo-Persian culture what do I mean by Indo-Persian right it's a mixture at the local level of the culture of local Indians and at the court level of Persian, that is the culture of the Salmanids and the Ghaznavids and even the Timurids. And this is best epitomized in the type of artwork that they use. For example, you have jelly. Jelly is a form of wood lattice work that blends light and shadow to create beauty. Um, this is usually put on windows or even inside the house so that when sunlight falls in, it creates these beautiful uh, pieces out of shadow and light. Um, you also have the Taj Mahal, this kind of famous edifice that everyone's seen, this white mausoleum. It was actually built by Shah Jahan, one of the Mughal emperors, a Muslim man uh, who blended the Persian and Indian architecture to celebrate his wife, 
Mumtaz. So I'm going to take a moment here and actually pause for a little bit of story time. The, su- the sort of Sufi Indo-Persian culture that I'm talking about, the Mughals, is best epitomized in two kind of stories. And they're both love stories. The first is the story of Layla and Majnun. And you may have heard me, especially if you're a student of mine or taking one of my classes, you may have heard me tell this story before. Layla and Majnun are a cup are kind of the original paramours. They're the ones that start Romeo and Juliet. Without them, there isn't Romeo and Juliet, nor is there the kind of great romantic tradition that we see that develop in Europe. The troubadour culture that develops courtly love and romantic love really is inspired by the tales of Lila and Majnun, who uh, the troubadours become familiar with thanks to Al-Andalus. But Layla and Majnun's origins is in the Indo-Persian world. It's in modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. So the story goes that there is this small village, and in this village there is this beautiful young girl, and her name is Layla. And Layla means starlit night. And there is this boy, this boy who is absolutely in love with her. And from an early age, they would go to school together and he would flirt with her and he would follow her and he would love her and he would get in trouble with the teachers who were constantly trying to separate them. Now, quite a being that they were quite young, little children, no one thought too much about it. So it was, they were a bit troublesome and mischievous, but you could separate them. But as the two grow, grew into a young adulthood, as they blossomed into young men and young women, it became a problem. Because this young boy was from the peasant class, and Layla was from the rich merchant class, and her father would not abide her marrying this poor crazy boy that kept following her around. But Layla loved him, and this boy loved her. And so they came to the idea the plot, the scheme, that they would run off together. Even if the world would conspire to hold them apart, if their fathers and family members would separate them and their teachers would keep them apart from a young age, they would find a way to make it. But on the night that they went to run away, the father of Layla sent his thugs, hired fighters to capture them. And they didn't get very far before these warriors caught on to them. And they gave this poor boy quite a thrashing. But something interesting happened. When they struck, when they struck at this boy, they found that Layla would also be wounded, not physically, but emotionally. She would cry out and beg for them to stop. And so, They left him alone, but they could not allow these two to get together. And so Layla's father conspired to have her married. And she married a wealthy, wealthy, rich man and was sent far, far away to a place where this boy knew not. And this drove the boy mad. For Layla was like an infection, a madness that had seeped into his heart, and he could not live without her. And his madness eventually gave him his name, Majnun, which comes from the Arabic word to be possessed, for he was possessed with love for Layla, and he became a wandering ascetic, denouncing worldly goods and food and life, and instead wandering about, wistfully waiting for Layla, hoping to catch a glimpse of him. 
various fakirs and wise men and mystics traveled around the world in order to get a glimpse of Majnun. They thought he was a wise man, a mystic, this man who was so clearly in love with Layla, so maddened by his love, they wanted to learn from him. And they would ask him, Oh Majnun, oh Majnun, where is Layla? Where is your love for Layla? And he would respond, Do you know not? I am but a veil. Scratch me, and beneath me you shall find Layla, for she is the truth within. One day, as he is traveling, he happens upon a small town, many, many leagues away from his hometown. And he is wandering through the marketplace, lost in his love for Layla, when out of the corner of his eye he catches a glimpse of something. It's Layla. Fate had brought these two star-crossed lovers together. He turns, they make eye contact. After several years, they finally see one another, and they rush into each other's arms. Majnun, this wasted-away man, and Layla, this sad wife of another man. But it was not to be. Their meeting was a cruel twist of fate. For that night, Layla passed away. Her heart couldn't take it. For years, despite being married, she too had pined away from Majnun. And finally seeing him, after all those years, she couldn't take it. Her heart gave out. And so they buried Layla. And Majnun would not leave her gravesite. He laid upon it, whispering her name over and over again as if it were a mantra. Layla, Layla. Layla, until he too passed away, completely wasted away, disappearing. They say, though, that if you listen closely, you can sometimes hear the wind whisper, Layla, Layla, Layla. This particular love story becomes kind of the main or the originator of the kind of star-crossed lovers. Another love story that I think really highlights the kind of uh, devotional aspect of Islam that really takes root in, in the Indo-Persian world is the story of Shah Jahan and his wife Mumtaz Mahal. Uh, Shah Jahan is the great-grandson of Akbar and is one of the Mughal emperors. And he is deeply in love with his wife, the Persian princess Mumtaz Mahal. And these two are so deeply in love that they have 14 Count them, 14 kids. And on the 14th child, Mumtaz dies. And Shah Jahan goes into a deep period of mourning. And he demands that his entire court mourn for two years. And then he decides that he needs to commemorate and memorialize his late dead wife. And so what he does is he builds this vast mausoleum. This mausoleum uh, combines both uh, Persian and Indian architecture style. It's made out of beautiful white stone. It's surrounded by a large running water, beautiful gardens full of fecundity, great gates that let you enter in. If you know what I'm talking about, it's the Taj Mahal. That's right, he builds the Taj Mahal to commemorate his late wife. 
Both of these love stories, that of Shah Jahan and that of Layla and Majnun, really talk about the kind of Indo-Persian world and specifically the form of devotional love that becomes the heart of uh, the kind of Islam that's practiced in the Mughal dynasty. And this is a form of ecstatic love rooted, a sort of ecstatic Sufism rooted in love. It's known as drunken Sufism. And a prime example of this would be the poetry of Rumi that I talked about last week. That is poetry that is devotional at its heart, that is ecstatic and celebratory, that is dealing with uh, a kind of longing for God. And so the story of Layla and Majnun is often reinterpreted as man's yearning to be with God, to be reunited with God at a sort of spiritual level, to annihilate the ego, what is known as fanna, to annihilate the ego and be absorbed into the oneness of God. This drunken form of Sufism is found in the Mughal dynasty, whereas sober Sufism, that is Sufism that kind of rejects the ecstatic qualities and focuses on a more monastic approach, is rooted, is really takes root in the Ottoman world. And we see this, that the, the kind of progenitor of this, or the, or the, or the origin, origin of this, is Junyad of Baghdad, first kind of sober Sufi, who rejects these kind of ecstatic expressions, and instead focuses on things like zikr. Zikr is re- repeating a mantra over and over again. Usually a prayer or a name of God, like Yanur, the O Light, repeating it over and over again until that divine quality is internalized. So Junyad of Baghdad, with his form of monastic Sufism, really inspires the Ottomans, while Bastami and Rumi's drunken Sufism inspires the Mughals. In addition to sort of the love stories, poetry and architecture we also have music and that's really an important feature of the indian mughal uh, islamic tradition you have ghazals ghazals are these kind of great epic love um uh, lyrics and songs and music style and the ghazal is a really old form of music uh, that starts actually in the Persian world. It combines poetry and various rhythms. And then you have a specifically unique version that emerges um, in the Indo-Persian world known as Qawali. And there's a man named Amir al-Khusro, a guy who comes down to Balkh during the kind of 10th, 11th century. Um, and he writes this beautiful song known Mast Kalandar, which is a praise of Ali. Um, and that song gets passed down over the years and becomes a huge feature of Indian music, Mast Kalandar, and it has been resung hundreds of times. There's like a new version out now by a guy named Sami Yusuf. The real classic Nusrafata Ali Khan, he sings uh, Mastal Kalandar, but it's an old song originally uh, written by a guy named Amir Khosro, but it establishes this new style of music known as Kawali. And if everyone know what Kawali is, you, you can see it quite visually. It's usually men who sing Kawali and they sit down and they're seated and they have their instruments, uh, which includes the harmonia. Harmonia is like a piano, accordion type instrument. The tabla, which are these two drums that are played with the hands and the fingers, 
with a certain pr- um, a, a central pressure point, uh, which creates a unique sound. Uh, the sitar, all these different instruments, and their praise songs. Kawali is a mystical, ecstatic v- type of worship in which you praise a saint or a Sufi mystic or Muhammad or Ali or God and you get caught up in the prayer. You get caught up in the music. And Kawali, Ghazals and Sufi music really takes root during the Mughal dynasty and remains imp- until today, the 21st century, a predominant, a unique feature of kind of Indian Islam or the Islam that is found in the uh, Indian subcontinent or South Asia, include Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, so we can include all of that. This tells us a lot. This really reflects the type of Islam that takes root in the Mughal dynasty. That is one that is pluralistic, one that is ecumenical, one that is flexible, and that is really focused on spiritual devotion and love and and yearning for God and finding a sort of universal truth regardless of what your religion is. And the Sufis of, of the Mughal world really were interested in kind of comparative religious thought. They were uh, they looked to Christianity and they saw in Jesus Christ, they saw him as a, the ideal Sufi. And they saw in Buddhism a lot of ideas that they found sympathy with and in Hinduism. So there's a lot going on in Mughal Islam that is flexible and connecting to broader religious traditions. Let's take a pause here and do a rapid fire round. I know last week we didn't do one and there was so much to talk about. So let's do one this week just to give us a break because we've talked so much. So first let's ask Layla and Majnun. Sounds a crazy obsessive love to me. Drunken versus sober Sufism. What the F? And there's so much going on here. What do I need to know? All right, let's go back. Layla and Majnun sounds like crazy obsessive love. Well, in many ways, you're right. The earliest kind of depictions of love actually talk about love as having multiple facets. Today, we think of love as a sort of romantic emotion. And in many ways, we mistake chemistry and lust as love. In reality, historically speaking, love has been defined differently by a variety of different uh, generations and time periods. Oldest depictions of love often talk about it in uh, contractual terms, that is, two individuals joining together in a social contract that, and then faithfully and devoted to one another to fulfilling that contract. Then there are various Greek notions of love, like agape, which is selfless love, philios, which is uh, brotherly love, eros, which is sort of erotic love. And Eros and the Muslim form of love are very similar to one another. Love is seen as a sort of madness. In the Greek, Hellenic, Mediterranean, European world, that madness is a bad thing. Cupid would strike you with his arrows and you would go literally insane. In the Muslim world, there is certainly an obsessive quality to this notion of love, but it's often defined as a sort of uh, uh, pure passion Uh, completely without ego, in which the ego is released and you give yourself fully and totally over to the other person. Now, in reality, it's not about two people. More often than not, this type of love is talking about a metaphor for God, the sacrifice or the annihilation of your ego and completely losing yourself in the oneness or the tawheed 
of God. So this kind of crazy obsessive love in Layla and Majnun, while it sounds like a star-crossed lovers or something out of a rom-com gone wrong, hey, you know, you, I'm not judging. Layla was totally bay. But what we see here is a metaphor for spirituality, a metaphor for losing the ego and becoming part of something greater. Drunken versus Sufi, what the hell is going versus sober Sufis, what the hell is going on here? So we're not talking about literal drunkenness or soberness. These are actually kind of anthropological terms or uh, terms used in comparative religion to describe the two different kind of styles of Sufism. Drunken Sufism involved a form of ecstaticism. That is, you would kind of build yourself up, hype yourself up. Hype, is hype still a word? Am I still using that correctly? Or am I like a decade too late to use hype? I don't know. Someone tweet me, is it okay to still use hype? I know hype man is a thing. Or did I hear that somewhere? I don't know. This is my ever-ending quest to get hip with the young crew and try to understand pop culture and pop culture lingo. Someone tell me. I think hype is still a thing because people are talking about hype man. But anyways, drunken Sufism is about getting hype. It's about really really losing oneself. So if you ever heard a really good song and you sung at the top of your lungs in the car or you know you were playing to your favorite song or you were caught up in the moment, right? Where all your friends are laughing and you're laughing and just tears start flowing from your eyes. That would be a sort of a, a drunken Sufi experience. That is an attempt to kind of lose oneself by building the emotion up. Build Building it all the way up until you kind of expand outward and lose yourself. So drunken Sufis often did things like write love poetry. You read Rumi's poetry, it's really homoerotic, right? He's talking about Shamsuddin, he's talking about love, and he talks about God, but he's talking about it in very sexual terms. The lips of God, and drinking wine, and being intoxicated, and yearning. You, music, right? You listen to Kawali music, and you can't help but to you know, clap your hands along, or... Or, or tap your feet to the beat of it. Drunkenness is about losing oneself in the kind of and ex, in the expansion, the transcendent emotional experience. Sober Sufism isn't because they're really sober. It's because they turn inward rather than try to become ecstatic. So rather than than sing or dance or spin like the Malwana Sufis do, instead they may do things like chant mantras and fast and pray until they sink deep within themselves and find a kind of point of singularity in which God exists. There's so much going on in this episode. What is it that I need to know? All you need to know is how Islam was shaped by this time period. What's really going on is that the Mughal dynasty uh, in many ways preserves and continues the Sufi tradition specifically a particular brand of Sufism that is ecumenical, rooted in universalism and poetry and writing. And that's important to understand because it's part of the development of Islam. And it also explains what happens next with the coming of the British. What happens to this type of Islam and where does it go? And so let's let's end the rapid round and go back to our story. This is a really good jumping point. What we're seeing at this particular time period is the Muslim world divided between three major polities known as the gunpowder empires and they're known as the gunpowder empires because they have gunpowder and all of them are actual military states there is the ottoman empire in anatolia and levant and north africa there is the safavids in the iranian highlands and there's the mughals in north 
uh, India. And all three of them also represent an, uh, inheritors. All three of them are inheritors of an Islamic tradition that pre-existed them. So the Ottomans are Sunni Islam inspired by sober Sufism. You have the Ottoman Sultan as a sort of custodian, as a guardian of the state, whereas Islam itself is rooted in mystics and scholars and qadis that we talked about last week, these kind of judges that deal with localized uh, interpretation of the Sharia, the sort of orthodoxy that was established in the Seljuk and Abbasid period becomes enforced and lived out in the Ottoman experience. The Safavids are the inheritors of the Shia tradition, but whereas in previous cases the Shias had become quietist, moving away from politics, the Safavids re-entwined Shia Islam into the state, making the two uh, reliant on one another. And the Mughals, on the other hand, were the inheritors of Sufi Islam, but drunken Sufi Islam and the Indo-Persian world. And in many ways, all three of them represented some aspect of the Persian world. Um, the Safavids were really about reclaiming some sort of pure Persianness. No such thing exists. This is myth-making. But they wanted to kind of reclaim it as part of their history. And for them, that pure Persianness was rooted in Shia commemoration. So we see these kind of tazia plays as well as Muharram, this uh, this uh, practice of mourning the Battle of Karbala, whereas the Ottomans were really the Turco-Persian world. These were Turkish people that were invited and adopted Persian as their culture. And then you had the, in the Mughals, which was the Indo-Persian world, a fusion of Persian high culture with Indian society. Now, what's particularly interesting here is that in the Sunni Islam, both in the Mughal dynasty and in the Ottomans, Islam relied on the state as a custodian, but it was not intimately involved in the state itself. That is to say, there was a Muslim ruler, the Sultan was a Muslim, but the Sultan was not enforcing Islam. There's no idea of an enforcing of Sharia or trying to make every, convert everyone to Islam. That's not true. Indeed, they only occasionally, um, they're only occasionally uh, claiming the title of Khalif. And instead, they're more often than not monarchal military commanders. So there's a real secular quality to both uh, the Mughal dynasty and the Ottoman dynasty. This does not feature the same way in the Safavid dynasty, in which Shia Islam becomes entwined with the state in massive parts because of the Safavid project of trying to use Shia Islam to legitimize their own rule. And so they imported scholars and appointed them to ayatollahs, official clerical class that is appointed by the state. The tazia plays are funded by the state. Um, the Shia Islam itself saw itself in, entwined with creating a state ruled by an imam. And so the Safavids really mixed uh, Shia Islam with the state in the way that the Ottomans did not. And so the notion of a Khalifal state or an imamate becomes a, a re-emergent feature in Shiism, something that it remained dormant for many, many years. Shias had accepted Sunni rule and were a minority community, but now because of mass forced conversion, because of the project of the Safavids, there is now this idea that Shiism could have a state. Um, and so 
when the Ayatollahs start to push back on the Safavids, going, wait a minute, you're not actually living up to Shia principles, the plan backfires. The Safavids are like, well, oh, fuck. Here we are uh, supporting Shiism, converting people, bringing in these Ayatollahs, but now these Ayatollahs are exerting their own power. Whereas in the Ottoman world, the uh, ulema and the sultans were pretty separate. Even though there was some reliant vis-a-vis the waqifs we talked about last episode, the power of the harem and the valide sultan, these uh, women who could create endowments for uh, uh, these scholars and these traditions, even though there is this kind of financial responsibility and this uh, two-way relationship, they are the authority is divided. Religious authority rests in the hands of the ulama in the Ottoman world, and the same in the Mughal world, whereas military power rests in the Sultan. So that division of powers that we saw during the Seljuk period is kind of maintained by the Ottomans and the Mughals. Not so with the Safavids, who religious authority and kind of military secular authority are entwined in one another. And the other component that's really important to understand in this time period is the transformation of jihad. We talked about last time how jihad really became about territorial defense as a result of the kind of experience of the Mongol invasion and destruction. This becomes a major feature between the Ottomans and the Safavids. The Ottomans and the Safavids are share they share a border. And so in many ways Remember when we started this podcast off, we talked about the Red Sea Wars, and we talked about the Byzantine-Sassanian Wars, this battle between the Byzantines and the Sassanians, because there is this territory, this frontier that they share, and that is the Levant, the Holy Land. And that is the exact same thing that happens during the Safavid and the Ottoman period. These two empires, they literally are taking up the territories of the previous pre-Islamic empires. You have the Ottomans replacing the Byzantines, and you have the Safavids replacing the Sasanians. And so that conflict, that ancient conflict, kind of continues. It's easy to see this as a Sunni versus Shia. It's not. Now, they use Sunni and Shia to explain their imperial con- uh, competition, the conquest between them. The Sunni, uh, the Ottomans claim to be the custodians of the Sunnis, whereas the Safavids claim to be custodians of the Shia. And so the, for the first time in several hundred years, after hundreds and hundreds of years of peacefully living with one another, creating the kind of Persia-Islamic world that we saw under the Abbasids and the Seljuks, there is conflict finally between the Sunnis and the Shias. And it is because jihad is used to explain away frontier conflict. The Ottomans are claiming jihad against the Safavids uh, in order to conquer their frontier territories in the Caucasus, and you have the Safavids claiming jihad against the Ottomans. This is fascinating to kind of all the Islamophobes and anti-Muslim bigots. It's hard for them to explain how jihad, the only time that really the Ottomans and the Safavids are using the term jihad is not to convert people, is not to conquer territories or world domination, but as a frontier conflict with other Muslims, in this case, Sunnis versus Shia. Again, it is an, it's a mistake to see this as a sort of religious conflict uniquely. It's actually more of a territorial frontier conflict, uh, kind of replicating the echoes of the uh, Byzantine and Sasanian conflict. And it is inaccurate to see this as Sunni versus Shia entirely. The alliances are much more mixed. The rhetoric, however, 
is Sunni versus Shia. So the Ottomans claim Sunni legitimacy and the Safavids claim Shia legitimacy. On the ground, though, it's much messier. And at the local level, people live amongst one another without any real issues. If you take like a place like Iraq, which passes hands between the Safavids and the Ottomans during the Ottoman-Safavid wars, almost more regularly than Donald Trump tweets, just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And yet on the ground, when you see... Sunnis and Shias live side by side. You look at a place like Mosul, there is Christian churches, there are Sunni mosques, there's Shia mosques. There's no territories, uh, there's, no, there's no conflict between uh, these people at a local level. It's simply an imperial rhetoric and propaganda that's happening between these uh, two empires. So I think I'm going to end it here today with this establishment of the Indo-Persian world with the Safavids and the Ottomans that we've talked about last week. But we, now we've tied it all together. So now what we're going to talk about is the decline of the Muslim world. What happens when suddenly the British trading companies show up in um the Mughal dynasty. What happens when the Ottomans in see the Europeans show up, specifically the British in Egypt? What happens with European colonialism? How does this shape Islam? And we're going to talk about various figures. For example, when we look at um, the Mughal dynasty, Shah Vali Ullah takes on a much more defensive uh, idea about Islam, about an Islam that needs to return to its caliphal roots to reject these kind of custodian empires for something more unified. We'll talk about pan-Islamism, we'll talk about the rise of modernism, political Islam, jihad as a form of anti-colonial violence. We'll talk all about that or modern Islam in our next episode. So I'm going to end this episode with some book recommendations. So the first book I'm going to recommend is called Just the Mughal Empire, and it's by a guy named John F. Richards. He's a historian of South Asia. He's at Duke University. Shout out to my friend Noura. Um, he's a, this is a really good book. It's actually written in 1993, and it still remains to this day the kind of authoritative, definitive book on the Mughal Empire. Really great historian. He's actually a historian of frontiers and borderlands, who so does a really good job of talking about that kind of liminal space and how that shapes the Mughals, because the Mughals come out of the the kind of borderlands with the Safavids because of the conflict. They're pushed out of Safavid territories and they go in to uh, Kabul and then North India. So highly, highly recommend it. It also has a great exposition on kind of cult culture, uh, court culture, not and then I'm also going to recommend William Chittick's book, In Search of the Lost Heart, Explorations in Islamic Thought. This is a really, really good book to help understand all the different uh, figures that I've talked about. Ibn Arabi, Rumi. It also goes on to talk about Mullah Sadra, which I might talk about uh, in Season 2. I'll probably talk about Mullah Sadra in... Yeah, definitely in season two when I talk about um, Sufism and illumination and all the kind of intellectual Islam. But this is, William Chittick is kind of the foremost scholar of Sufism in in the world. So definitely check out any of his books. He focuses much more on Ibn Arabi, but In Search of the Lost Heart is a great, great book. 
I also recommend Niall Green's book, Sufism, A Global History. Niall Green, I took classes with him at UCLA. He is a historian of Central Asia and South Asia. Um, and this is a really great book because it takes a global approach to Sufism, looks at kind of the transnational history that develops in the ninth century and traces it down into kind of the contemporary uh, South Asia, Middle East, and Africa. Really fantastic book. Anyways, that's my book recommendations for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast and you're enjoying these episodes we only have one more to go before we're done for the season we're going to take a short break after that and then come back for season two where we'll take a much deeper uh, look at this once we've since we've established the chronology we're going to do a thematic approach if you've enjoyed this podcast so far please be sure to leave a review with itunes and i'll give you a shout out on this podcast anyway that's all for now thank you for tuning in and remember stay smart my history nerds (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.